All right, so then, well, it's a little hot. <laughs> is it, can you turn it down just a titch, or is that Thanks. Kids are invited to go back to the library to hang with Emily. If any of you are in doubt about this, you can go back and hang out there too, because it might be, you, know, you might feel more confident watching me put this in here. Can you see that, kind of? All right. Sorry. I'm going to have my back to you the whole time. I don't know what to do about that. I feel nervous about it. But. So, Kim, your job is if they give me like money ears or anything, but let me know what's up back there. All right, guys, here we are at Numbers 20. Uh, I'm kind of excited about this. Always a little nervous and always hopeful um, that if you share a good word that encourages your heart uh, in this process. Basically, we're in Chapter 20 of Numbers, and the process is going to be this. We're going to drill down into Numbers and talk about it, and then I'm going to take a step back and look at the grumblings in uh, Numbers 20, but also all of the grumblings through uh, you know, the exile here or through the exodus, and then we're going to take another step back and we're going to look at Moses in um, Numbers 20. This is not his best moment, probably his worst moment. Uh, the Bible is grace, graceful to him. It doesn't really tell us what all happens to him, um, but we're going to take a look back at Moses and do kind of a little character study on who he is. And then talk about this transition to the wilderness. So they want to get from the wilderness into the promised land. And, and Aaron falls and dies. And Miriam falls and dies. And Moses falls and dies. And they don't make it into the promised land. Um, and how does that affect us? What is our process in that? And how, does that, how, is, how is this Old Testament connected to us being Christians today? Because it's different after Christ comes. It is just different. So we want to hit that and talk about that just a little bit. Okay, so this chapter is not the most cheery chapter, probably, that you can preach on. Matt has a tendency to do this to me. Like one time he gave me Judah and Tamar. Uh, another time he gave me um, the Trinity, you know, those kind of things. But uh, this chapter starts with death, um, and it ends with death. So there's that. And then there's failure. Um, and then there's God's grace and mercy to people. And then there's some kind of family bitterness over here with... Uh, Edom and those kind of guys. So, not the cheeriest chapter, but, but that's okay. And I'm really glad Carla read that and that uh, Brian read the one out of Corinthians because that kind of gives us uh, what's going on. The first death is Miriam, Moses' sister, and doesn't tell us a whole lot. And Miriam died, and she was buried there. Okay. Uh, so, there's that. At the end, Aaron goes up uh, to the mountain, and he takes off his priestly robes, and they put him on his son, Eleazar, and Aaron dies. And then they uh, mourn for 30 days and celebrate his life. Um, so those are kind of the brackets of how that goes. All right. In the middle of that, Moses is called to, uh, the people come and they grumble. And I love the word grumblings. And we're going to hit the grumblings. And talk a little bit about how their grumblings might be our grumblings. And how we turn grumblings into something better than that if we can. Um, but they're, they grumble. Moses uh, gets... And this is hard. What, what, what is exactly Moses' sin here? But he gets a little bit haughty. And God tells him to speak to the rock. And he brings the rod and he strikes the rod twice. And he makes this claim, what, do I have to bring water out of, you know, out of this rock for you? Um, and so we're really not sure. All the commentaries had about seven or eight different versions of what Moses' sin was. But it's relatively veiled there in that, in that process. Um, and then the little thing with Edom, basically, they're, they're moving on from Kadesh here, and it's an old feud between Jacob and Esau. And Edom is the people of Esau, 
and they want Israel wants to pass through and not do any harm, any foul, and they won't let them do it. So there's that little uh, bitterness in the middle of that. Okay, on to the grumblings here. So here's here's what they say in uh, in uh, chapter twenty, verse five. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. Should sound like a fairly familiar complaint. Uh, their complaint is about the figs, the vines, the pomegranates, drips with irony. But those are the very foods that the scouts brought back from the promised land. So here they are complaining that they don't have this stuff. If they had obeyed God when he told them to go into the promised land and take it, they would have all those things. I think the transition for us is how often does that happen? Where we're missing something in our life or something's going wrong. Most of the mess in my life has been self-inflicted. Um, I'm always kind of Barney Fife with the bullet and shoot myself in the foot sometimes, right? So I think that we have to think about that a little bit. Before we begin to complain at God, what, why is this not working? What's going on here with my health? What's happening with the money? What's happening with the job? What's happening with this? Some of that stuff is self-inflicted in that. Um, not all, but sometimes it is. And so we have to think about being obedient in that moment. Uh, a lot easier said than done, right? Uh, but it's a, it's a concept. Uh, as in the second rebellion, the people's sin is almost their willful forgetfulness and lack of gratitude for what God has done for them. Their lack of seeing their own sin as a part of the reason for their problems, combined with their lack of trust in God's ability to provide for their basic needs. And so, as we go through these grumblings, we could just focus on all the negatives. I think one of the things that kind of works in my life here is when I see that list of negatives, I'm pretty aware of that, that maybe I'm not obeying, or maybe I'm not trusting, or maybe I'm not remembering. But I think it helps me better to turn those things into positive prayers, as opposed to focusing on what they didn't do in the wilderness. How might that transition into my life? So what they needed to do here was to obey, right? Just to do what God asks you to do. Ever look at your kid and go, you know, you might just want to do what I ask you to do. Like, that, just try that. See if that works. You never had that, have you? <laughs> never given your dad that look, you know? And, and you just try it. And every once in a your kid or a student or your kid, your coach, will actually do it. And they're like, you're not going to believe this, gosh. That worked. Really? That's cool. That's cool. So sometimes when God asks us to do something, we just do it. It just makes it a lot easier. And they need to remember, what has God done? What has God done? In our journey in the last uh, seven, eight years, ten years, we've just started writing up with journals of remembrance. What has God done in our life? What has happened? That's so biblical, it's unbelievable, right? What has he done? How has he met us? How has he saved us? When we saw it, thought it was all a disaster, and he pulled in all greatness out of it. Um, to remember those things. And then to just trust. The greatest thing you can do, one of those honoring things you can do for somebody, is believe it is to trust their promise. Make sense? So somebody says, I, I will be there. I will do this. I will do this thing. And as you can trust that, that's honoring to them. And it's also dishonoring to them when you're really like, really? Are you actually going to do that? I don't believe you. Like, what's happening here? Okay? Um, and trust is something, I don't know that you can just make yourself trust somebody. Can you just like, oh, I, I trust you. Or is trust something that's just kind of, you know, just kind of swells up uh, from you. I have to think about that a little bit. All right. So on to the grumbles of the people. And Psalm 106 is awesome because it kind of lists those grumbles. Um, and it's pretty easy always to look at, uh, you know, look at the Pharisees and say, oh, the Pharisees were messed up. We never would have done that. Or Judas, how, how did he live with Jesus and then betray him? 
or the people, why are they always just whining and complaining and all that kind of stuff? But I think you can see yourself in these. You ought to be able to see yourself in there if you have that self-awareness of who you are. Um, Psalm 106, they rebelled by the sea. They forgot his works. They didn't wait for his counsel. They envied Moses and the camp and Aaron and the saint of the Lord. They changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot their savior who had done great things in Egypt. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents. All those things should be interwoven sometimes in your life. And one of the things the scripture does is it brings light to you. I remember a teacher a long time ago, Bill Gothard, which I've never heard of Bill Gothard, uh, but I was like in junior high, I went to Bill Gothard things. And he, one of his encouragements was to memorize, you know Bill Gothard, yeah you do, to memorize scripture. And he said, you know, if you memorize this scripture, your brain's going to get shaken up. Because the word of God is living and active, sharper than two edged sword. And as it moves into your mind, it does things, right? And it, it begins to affect how you feel and who you are and what happens. It begins to convict you. The Holy Spirit uses those words. So when we read these things that they all did wrong, I'd like to flip them into a positive and think about how you might pray, right? So they rebelled at the sea. Oh, God, help me to obey. Uh, they forgot his words. Oh, God, help me to remember who you are and what you are and how faithful you've been to me. They did not wait for his counsel. God, give me patience. I am so impatient sometimes. I'm like, get it, get it, get it. okay, let's go, let's go, let's do it. Um, they envied Moses in the camp and Aaron the same to the Lord. Can I just be content with who I am? Father, could you let me be content? This is the body you've given me. This is the life you've given me. This is the mind you've given me. This is the day you've given me. This is the field that I will be tilling in my days. This is the woman I have married. Can I just be content? You know how hard that is in America today? Everything about you is to not be content, right? This Facebook thing, and this Instagram, and this thing here, and this advertisement. Can you just be content in what God has made you to be? I'm not saying, oh, I love my sin, I'm just going to wallow and hang in it. But live in contentment in who God has made you to be. They change their glory to the image of an ox who eats grass. Don't worship something that's not God. Worship God. Sounds really simple, right? Uh, not so much. Um, they forgot, remember. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents. Matt had a great point uh, a little bit ago when he said, you know, if you are going to complain, do not complain about God to another. Do not complain in your tents. But if you watch the scripture closely, what does God do when people complain directly to him? Watch the little dialogue between Abraham and God about things. Abraham just going right at God. Just going right at him. Job's going right at him. They're having this conversation. So if you have a complaint, if you have a thing you don't understand, if you have a frustration, if you have a brokenness, don't whine to somebody else, but bring it to the Lord. I would say do it humbly, but bring it to the Lord, right? And talk directly to him with a boldness uh, of one that has been uh, brought into grace. So then the second half of the grumblings in 6 and 106 are a little bit different. Uh, what happens in the second half is they begin to join themselves to evil. Right? And this is the whole process through the Old Testament. Right? I don't know if you've ever read through Kings and Chronicles and all that. When this king serves the Lord and then the next one joins the evil. And this one's in and then it kind of goes back and forth like that. And I think the caution here for us is not to join ourselves to brokenness, to darkness, and to evil. Okay? It, it doesn't exactly, it, they're going to say that they, they want, don't want them to marry into 
those tribes or they don't want to become one with them, they're supposed to push them out. This isn't an ethnic thing. God pulls all kinds of people uh, into his family, into the chosen people. The Ethiopian woman is Moses' wife. Ruth is a Moabite. She becomes an ancestor of Christ, right? Tamar is an ancestor of Christ. Rahab is a harlot from Jericho. It's not an ethnic or racial thing, but it's an idea thing. It's a faithfulness thing. It says that Solomon's wives led him astray. And of course, he wanted to be led astray, or he wouldn't have been, right? But it's an idea. It's a concept. It's a belief. It's a set of things that you adhere to. So here's what it says. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor. They angered him also at the waters of strife, so that it went ill with Moses on account of them. That's what we just read. They did not destroy the peoples concerning whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles, and they learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the bloods of their son, the blood of their sons and daughters. <laughs> Nevertheless, he regarded their affliction when he heard their cry, and he relented according to the multitude of his mercies. So they so intermingled that they participate in the sacrifices of Moloch, where they take a live child and put it in the fire and burn it. Um, and this is so angering to God, and so frustrating, and brings his wrath. And yet, he's merciful with us. So. All right. Now, let's talk about Moses Extraordinary. Can you just think of somebody in the Bible that, that's more awesome than Moses? That's more heroic than Moses? Like, I don't know. I mean, we don't know much. We say Jesus? That's good sense. Okay, I like that. Yeah, Jesus is fair. It's good. Um, and that's cheap, though, right? Like, that was always the answer in Sunday school. When Mrs. Kubitsky was looking at you, and you she'd be like, Jay, what's the answer? And you'd be like, Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, we know a little bit, we know a lot about David, we know his internal life, and we know a lot about Moses, Joseph was awesome, Abraham was awesome, but Moses, in the, in, to the Jewish people, is this towering figure, and so it's kind of interesting that we see him at his brokenness in chapter 20 of Numbers here, okay, and Moses is this figure that's just unbelievable, we're going to get into his strength and look at his character as a place where we can move toward, but let's talk about his brokenness in Numbers 20. Um, there were all kinds of commentaries uh, that Matt gave me. I don't know if you guys saw me walk out last week, but I had like a little box full of commentaries that I was supposed to read. And trust me, Matt, I read them all twice. Um, but one of the things in the commentaries is that they're all trying to figure out what was Moses' sin? What did he do exactly? How did he disrespect God in this moment? And I kind of basically just kind of threw up my hands because the scripture is fairly veiled about it. And I kind of have this feeling when the scripture is veiled about it, maybe it's veiled on purpose. Maybe we should over-speculate and try to figure out what it was. I did like the Jewish tradition, which says, it's not very explicit what Moses did because God wanted to protect his honor. He wanted to protect the honor of the people. So if you listen to the scripture, it says, then the Lord spoke to Aaron, Moses, and Aaron. Is that a private conversation between Moses and Aaron? I don't know, but I kind of think it is. I think God kind of calls him in, into the carpet here, and he gives them the business. Because you did not believe me and hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. And so it's not just that Moses was told to speak to the rock, but he strikes it twice. It's not like a clerical error. Does that make sense? Like Moses told A. Just, it's a big thing. 
There's some disrespecting of God there. There's some anger of Moses. There's some raising of Moses up. There's some way that God is deeply dishonored in there. And yet it's relatively veiled to us. It's between God and Moses and Aaron. And I'm pretty okay with that, right? I'm pretty okay with that. I know that you and I don't want all of our brokenness up on the screen, right? We don't want everybody to know all that stuff. And I think there's something, I don't want to use the word sweet because it sounds like my wife's a kindergarten teacher, but there's something kind of sweet about God, you know, not laying out everything that Moses did there, right? About keeping that kind of in-house between them. All right, let's talk about Moses because I think Moses is pretty awesome. First of all, you know that he's favored at birth, right? His mother loves him, and they put him in the basket, and he goes down, and he's raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, and he's nursed by his own mother. And so there's this calling and choosing and favoring of Moses right from the beginning. He is a person that's going to be uh, amazing there. It says in Hebrews um, 11, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's eating. Well, tell me, what's one, what's one vein within that family? Courage. This is a courageous family. Courage is a character of them. And I'm not surprised that Moses shows courage all the time, right? Courage is a really awesome thing because courage is something you can actually show. It doesn't mean you don't see the danger. It means that you act in the face of the danger. So if you act because you don't see the danger, you're just an idiot. Right? But if you're courageous, you see the danger, you put yourself at risk, and you do something anyway, that's courage. And that's a virtue. right? That's a strength. When you can put yourself on the line for other people in the face of danger. That's a beautiful thing. Um, they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure the ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So when is this choice here? Well, the next phase we get in Moses' life when he kills the Egyptian. He sees an Egyptian that's beating two of his Hebrew brothers. And he rises up at that injustice and he kills the uh, Egyptian there. Now that's a hard sell in a Mennonite church, right? It's a very hard sell. Don't know quite what to do with that. But there are some commentators that argue it is Moses' very fierceness for justice in that incident which is part of God's character that God has built in you. So whatever you do with the, with the death, the murder there, um, I don't know. But I do know that he stood up and he made a choice at that moment to identify himself not with his Egyptian. Moses had it, right? He could have just lived in the Pharaoh's house, hung out in the hot tub, watched a little ESPN. He'd have been fine, right? Had the riches of Egypt at his feet. And it would have been perfect. But here he doesn't identify with that. What does he identify with? with his people, right? And from that moment on, Moses has made a choice, which is really pretty powerful and pretty different. Um, he's out in the wilderness, and he uh, sees this burning bush, and it says that God waits for him to go to it. And Moses turns into God in that moment, and he says, God, here I am. So there's a courage in Moses, there's a fight for justice and right, and there's a turning into God. There's a place where Moses could have turned away and apparently just said, there goes the burning bush. I'm not looking at that. But he turns into him. That's a character that we can pick up in our heart and in our lives. Um, he hungers to see God. When you go out there, when you're on the raft of us, do you have a sense that people are hungry for God? Not really. <laughs> I don't know. They're just mostly shopping on their phone. But is there a hunger for God? 
That's a character that's important and passionate. He hungry. He says, God, I want to see you. Does this mean see you? Yes. But does it mean see you? You know the difference between seeing you and seeing you? It's both, right? He wants to see him with his eyes, and he wants to see him with his understanding. They're both important. He says, God, I want to see you. And Moses says, you can't, or God says, you can't see me. If you see me, you're going to die. Moses says, I want to see you. He says, all right, stand on the rock. I'm going to pass by you, and I'm going to put my hand over you, and I'm going to put your face in the cleft of the rock, and my glory is going to pass by you. And as I, as I walk on my back, you'll see the glory of God. He has that heart to see God. That's an awesome thing that we can pick up from Moses. Moses is a deeply humble man. This is the last thing about the character of Moses here. Um, he is... Oh, I, I got a little off there. I went to the next one. Let's finish these last things here. He has epic strength through the Exodus. Moses has glorious worship. You ever read Psalm, or Exodus 15? You know that song that we sing? I don't know if we sing this or... I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. Remember that song? And as Christians, we add, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the tomb is empty, won't you come and see? And as spiritual Christians, we add, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, his fiery Holy Spirit reigns in me. The Lord, my God, my strength, my song, has now become my victory. So Moses has this intense worship, and as this worship is going forward, Miriam picks up the tambourines, which Shelly couldn't find, and she grabs all the women in the camp, and she begins to lead an echo to that. And they all have this incredible moment of worship. Um, God sees Moses' power come through his words and through his body. The ten plagues attack Egypt, the parting of the sea, the bitter water made sweet, the manna from heaven, the water from the rock. There's victory in battle. Moses sees so much, and God uses him so much. Okay, now I think I'm back on track. I got a little off there. Okay, It's what you get with an unpaid amateur, right? Can't even follow his own little notes. Just kind of silly. Um, so yeah, he does want to draw near to God. When Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, there's this really powerful moment that I think is kind of interesting. All the people witnessed the thundering and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they backed off. Then they said to Moses, you talk to us and we will hear, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. I want to hear from God. They want to hear from Moses, right? Because they're terrified of the awesomeness of God. But listen to Moses' response. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Another powerful characteristic. He wanted to see God's glory with his heart, his heart, with his head, with his eyes, and he wants to draw near to God's presence. That's powerful and beautiful and important. Um, finally, he was a friend of God. This is why Moses is so special. I don't think we really think of ourselves as a friend of God. It feels like that's too forward and would be just too disrespectful relative to his might and majesty and beauty and who we are. But Moses was a friend of God. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of the cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
So there's one little rebellion here that we haven't talked about, and that's the rebellion of Miriam and, and Aaron. And so Moses marries this Ethiopian woman, and you can imagine this. Miriam and Aaron, brother and sister to Moses, are not happy with the new wife. And can you imagine your families that are ever being this little kind of about that kind of stuff? And so they bring these complaints to Moses about this wife. And you're going to see a fierceness in God's response to this that is just kind of amazing. Have you ever been called into the office? you ever been dressed down? I think it's happened to all of us, right, at some point, right? And mostly well-deserved, right? And sometimes even funny because it's, it's so true that you're just like, dang, I'm busted here, right? It just happens, okay? Well, Moses and Aaron and Miriam get called into the presence of God. And then Aaron and Miriam have to step forward, and God gives them the business. But as you listen to him dress them down and say, why are you not listening to my friend, to my servant, to my Moses? You're also going to hear God's love for Moses and his respect for him. And I think that love and that respect for Moses comes from all these other things. That Moses was fierce for justice. That he worshipped gloriously. That he wanted to see God. That he tried to turn into his presence. That instead of drawing away from God, he drew into God. Okay? That he was a friend of God. But listen to the, uh, um, to the dressing room. <coughs> now, the man Moses was very humble. More than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out, you three, from the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known and through a vision, I speak with him in dreams. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against your servant, Moses? Okay. So we have this kind of tough chapter. We have this sin and brokenness of Moses. We have the grumblings of the people. And yet I've tried to be a picture of Moses being a pretty faithful, pretty awesome man of God. And yet... They're not going to make it, are they? They're not going to make it to the promised land. Moses and Miriam and Aaron all die in the wilderness. Short of the promised land that flows with milk and honey. They must stand and be holy as God is holy. And of course they cannot. And they do not. And we also do not and cannot stand on our own righteousness. We also would fall in the wilderness. We do fall. And we die in the wilderness. The law is a tutor. The law instructs us of our inability to do it. And that's okay. That's okay. Until you come to that moment, when you look at somebody like Moses and say, Moses can't even make it. I sure can't make it. Until you come to that brokenness, to the edge of your capacity to make it, that's the moment when you can truly be broken and come to God and let God fill you with the strength and the power to begin to move forward. And yet, on this side of the incarnation, on this side of the resurrection, something radically new and beautiful and wholly different happens. Yes, we still remain as the old man in Adam, but the old man in Adam is dissolving away, and the new man in Christ emerges. So, all of these Old Testament figures 
in Adam were a type of human broken in Adam, broken in sin. And then a moment happens of the incarnation. If you go back to the baptism of Jesus, the, the sky tears open. And, and, and the transfiguration, the sky opens, it tears, right? The veil of the temple tears. And God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased listen to him. All of history is transformed at that moment because God has done something new. He's torn into history. He's broken in. And it is now new and different. So, yes, we will always be an Adam. You will always have that sin, that brokenness, that old man within you. But because of this new thing in Christ, you're living a life in Christ which is different and new and transformative. Everyone in the Old Testament wanted to see this moment, right? So Jesus says that Abraham longed to see this day. Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration speak with Jesus about the coming day. Peter says that this salvation was something that even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this grace of salvation prepared for you. They were told that their message was not for themselves but for you. And now the good news has been announced by you, by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is also wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. So everyone wants to see this transition. There's this long period of trying to make it, of trying to live up to it, of trying to get it done, to try and have that life in Him. But if you're in Christ, you are a new man. And something new and different has happened. And that's where I want to end this today. I think that angels long to see in that salvation, and sometimes we don't even recognize what we have in Him. We don't even recognize the power of what He has done in us through the incarnation. It's a quote I like from Karl Barth, said, um, which uh, just disappeared here somewhere. Ah, there it is. So, just on the incarnation, you guys know the scripture, so I'll go fast here. But, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory is of that of the Father. So here's this quote I want to think about just for a second to end on. When we encounter the power of the resurrection, and then he quotes this, this scripture from Romans 6. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. When we encounter the power of the resurrection, impossibility becomes possible. So the, the resurrection is impossible, right? The resurrection cannot happen. Christ is on the cross. He has the crown of thorns. He has been beaten. The nails are in his hand. The spear goes into his side. The water separates into blood. The heart stops beating. The blood stops circulating. They don't break his legs, but they tear him down from the cross, and they wrap him in the shroud, and they put the, the myrrh and, the, and the, the spices on it, and Christ is dead. Right? But when you encounter the power of the resurrection, what happens is that Christ who is dead through the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans, is raised from the dead. And that's not an arbitrary power, and it's not something far off in the sense of that's what happened to Jesus, but what does it got to do with me? You see, if you 
believe and you understand and you know that that dead body was filled with life and that Christ rose from the dead and that you are baptized into his death, that power of the resurrection lives and walks in you. And you become a new person. And that's what they didn't have. They didn't have the power of the resurrection. They did not have the blood of the Lamb covering them. They did not have the filling of the Holy Spirit. They did not have the full testament of Scripture that we have. We have so much in Christ that it is utterly amazing. And again, I'm not saying that that means you're going to be sinless or unbroken or any of that stuff. But I am saying there's a new life that is for you in Christ which is unbelievably powerful. So hear what he says, Paul says in Romans 6. And uh, again, we'll end with this thought. Therefore we have been buried with Jesus through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Your baptism is a real thing. And it's a symbol of a real thing that really happened. As you are buried with Christ and raised up out of the water. So that the old man goes into the water and the new man comes out. So that the old man goes with the buried and dead Christ and the new man comes out with the resurrected Christ. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ Having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. He says it a different way in Colossians. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. And as you guys all know, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. So one of the things that's just been encouraging to me in this series, I hear the grumblings of the people, I know them, because they're my grumblings, right? And yet, if we really feel the Holy Spirit, the Spirit can convict you and turn those grumblings into prayers for transformation, right? I see Moses' sin, and I relate to it. How many times have I disrespected God? How many times have I disrespected other people that are made in his image? How many times have I disrespected my wife or my children? Unfortunately, more than once, right? And yet, I see that. And yet, I see great character in Moses that I could emulate. I could want to turn into God rather than run away, right? I could remember what God has done. I could do those things that Moses did and emulate that in a way. Mostly because of the power of the Holy Spirit, which brings the fruit of the Spirit to us. Love and patience. Long-suffering those things. So anyway, let's pray. Father, you are great, and uh, we love you. Thank you for your servant Moses and for your people, and mostly for your plan to bring life to a broken world, to uh, send your Son to die for us, to open our hearts that we might receive your grace and your glory, to open our souls to your Holy Spirit. Father, you go forward today. 